In a world where mental health problems are used as common tropes in various forms of storytelling, therapist Ryan Inglestad and executive producer Mike Graham try to determine what lines up with real life and what is just exaggerated fantasy. Listen as we delve into the fantastical tales told about mental health in books, movies, and television. This is Pop Psych 101. Welcome back to Pop Psych 101. I am licensed therapist Ryan Engelstad, here as always with co-host, advocate, and long-lost twin who's just woken up from a 20-year coma, Mike Graham. Ryan! Oh my god! Brother! Where have you been? I can't believe Mother did this to us. She threw me into a pool and tried to kill me, and then she put you up for adoption. Where have you been all this time? I I didn't even know you existed until just a couple days ago, and and now it feels like our relationship is a a weekly drama of unforeseen relationship coincidences. (laughs) Oh, man. We are overdramatic. Uh, welcome to Soap Opera Week. This is, I think this That's is what right. this is going to feel like. So uh, thank you to all our listeners who have requested Big Little Lies, because this is the Big Little Lies episode. It is. It's, it's, it's big, but it's not little. Not That didn't at make all. any sense, but... <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's very big, because this show is, is bonkers, if I can say yeah. that. Um, it's the, it's one of those shows where I heard that people were really into it and we're having conversations about it, but I, I wouldn't have watched it if not for our show. And now yeah. I've watched it and I am, you're, you're cruising through it. I'm compelled to talk more about it. So that's, that's what right. we're doing today. That's right. But before we do that, Mike, right. I have to tell you about a book I'm reading. Okay. Cause it's fascinating and it, it's, it represents such a shift from how I've thought about not just therapy, but just like approach to mental health and mental illness in a lot of is ways. It, is this a, a self-help book? Another one, another self-help book? Uh, I don't know if it would be in that category or not. Although if you just heard the title, you would assume that it is. Okay. But it, it's, it's, a, it's science, it's um, memoir. It's very interesting. It's a New York Times bookseller. I should, I should say bestseller. But isn't every book a New York Times bestseller? I no, feel like. No, no, no. Okay. Only, only the books that people talk about. Um, One of the 10 best books of 2018 titled How to Change Your Mind, What the New Science of Psychedelics Teaches Us About Consciousness, Dying, Addiction, Depression, and Transcendence by Michael Hmm. Pollan. Pollan? Pollan. We're going to say Pollan. Pollan. And this sounds very interesting. It's very interesting. And I'm only uh, less than 100 pages in, but I had to bring it up on the show because I'm fascinated by it. The listeners will know I've shared a little bit about my background in addiction. I worked in inpatient outpatient programs for the first 10 odd years of my career. And in, in the majority of you know substance abuse programs, they preach abstinence. They preach all drugs are bad. Okay. But reading this book, even just so far, it's completely, I would say, convinced me in a lot of ways that at least specifically psychedelics. So this book talks about two in particular. That's LSD, commonly known as acid. And um, psilocybin or magic mushrooms. mushrooms. Yes. Magic mushrooms. Yes. And those two drugs in particular are being, are are finally being properly evaluated and tested for the benefits that they can offer people, as the title suggests, people who are dealing with addiction, people who are dealing with depression, people who are dealing with end of life issues such as dying. And it's fascinating research. I'm only less than 100 pages in, and like I said, and I'm convinced. So it's just like a very convinced that driving out to the desert, you know, getting around a campfire, and you know, and watching the eagles fly. (laughs) No, no, I'm not convinced of that. No, I what I'm convinced is um, that in a therapeutic context. So what the author talks about in particular are when these drugs like psilocybin mushrooms or LSD acid are given to patients in therapeutic situations, controlled situations, meaning they're in a uh, hospital or a clinic setting where they Mm -hmm. are observed and and accompanied by a therapist, or in some cases, multiple therapists, 
to uh, sort of help them through the process of their psychedelic experience. Okay. To like make them feel comfortable. Yes, and exactly. Yeah. Grounding, all that like sort of thing. Like this is safe, yes, that kind of thing. Exactly. Right. That it has huge therapeutic value um, for uh, multiple reasons, multiple cases, multiple situations. So it's just something that I'm fascinated by and I want to do more research. And I hope that for people who are skeptical of this, that they'll read books like this or they'll read articles. Right. Because they're saying it can help depression, all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. I actually, I have a firsthand experience. Do you? I I'll, I can cut this if. It's up to, I don't care. You, sh you only, only if you want to share your experience. Okay. So I would say even three years ago, I dropped a couple of hits of acid. Okay. And uh, the next day, like when it wore off, I I smoked cigarettes at the time. I quit smoking the next day and I didn't pick up a cigarette for five months. Which was pretty significant for you, I'm sure. Very. Uh, yeah. I, I had never even thought about it. I just stopped smoking the next day. And mm -hmm. also I started eating vegetables. Wow. If you ask, ask my wife, that's like <laughs> an impossibility. We really so, are twins, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> and it, you know what? It, but it wore off. Sure. Like the everything like started fading away. But sure. I don't know if that's anecdotal, but it was like a, my dad was like, you quit smoking. How'd you do it? I'm like, ah, well, I did this. Mm -hmm. And then I just didn't have a craving after that. Yeah. So what what they're seeing is that it's it's these sort of rewiring our brain experiences, kind of like what you're talking about, where people can have, in some cases, one dose, one therapeutic experience with a psychedelic and can experience what you experience, where there's long-lasting benefits. So, you know, most um, antidepressants you're taking every day for years and years, antipsychotics, right. all these things, same same situations. Whereas with the psychedelics in this early research, what they're seeing is that, you know, one dose delivered therapeutically under a controlled situation can yeah. have long-lasting effects for people. Right. Yeah, you don't want to do it how I did, you know, because... Well, no, and in fact, and this is one of the reasons why I think people have a, a an incorrect perception of it, is that these two drugs in particular are not physically addictive in the way that things like opiates yeah. or, or cigarettes are. Yeah, you do it and you don't really want to again. Right. In <laughs> fact, if you do it multiple times or if you do it frequently, it starts to lose its effect. That's right. So I just think it's fascinating and I'm, I'm hopeful that our society continues to be receptive to alternative forms of treatment because as you know mike i'm, I'm an experimenter i want all avenues of treatment and support available right. to as many people as possible totally agreed so fascinating stuff uh, go go do your own research but you know yeah. the, the world's changing i think and i already did my research there so you go. <laughs> <laughs> at that we're going to jump into today's episode if you're listening though we would really love it if after the show you went and uh Give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening and hit that subscribe button or follow button. And let's get into the show. Let's do it. I mean, where do we even begin, honestly, about everything? I mean, Principal Nepal, this, you have a very good point. Climate change is important. It's important. But it's also a lot to load up on a lot of second graders. I'm sorry. Yes. That the whole world might go kapui. They need to know that. You know, I think part of the problem is we lie to our kids. We, we fill their heads full of Santa Claus and stories with happy endings when most of us know most endings to most stories fucking suck. Right? Let's just get real. There aren't a lot of happy endings for a lot of people, you know? Be it climate change, be it guns in schools. And, and our kids are afraid. They're, they're afraid to go to school. They're afraid they're going to get shot. We don't prepare them. We fill their heads full of happy endings and happy stories and lies. And, and we tell them things like, you're fine. You're, you're going to be fine. And we tell ourselves. We tell ourselves we're going to be fine. But we're not. You know that song that we used to sing when we were little, The Rainbow Connection? There's a line in it that they talk about rainbows are illusions. And then... There's another line, and it goes on, and it says that, that, that who said every wish would be granted would be if you wish on a morning star. Do you remember that? But th this is the part that I thought is that somebody thought of that, but someone believed them. And look what it's done. We have to tell the children that life is an illusion and things don't work out sometimes. 
Big Little Lies. <laughs> I tried to figure out exactly what that meant because it's like, I don't know, a double negative or... Uh, oxymoron. It's something. Yeah, it's an yeah oxymoron. it's like an oxymoron. Yeah. And I was just like, okay, I don't know. Well, yeah, it's it's funny because, I mean, we could do this episode in, in 10 minutes in which I express my opinion that the Monterey Five should have just gone to the cops immediately following the end of season one, and they probably would have been fine? I don't know, Ryan. What happened in season one? <laughs> well, yes, they they were involved in an altercation. And so, okay, so oh, yeah. before I do this, um, spoiler alert, obviously, that should go yeah. without saying, but we are focusing our episode today in particular on the sort of early story arcs of season two of Big Little Lies. And for me... One episode particularly. You have only seen one episode of Big Little Lies. I've seen, I've seen, and that's where we stopped it. We actually sort of did this intentionally, uh, but we decided that's where was going to be the door for us to get in, or at least Ryan said, start with this episode. And I watched that episode, and then I thought, wouldn't it be great if I only watched that if episode? If this was all you knew about it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Ryan, who's seen most of everything else, has to, <laughs> to help me figure out what the crud was going on. I'm going to do my best. Yeah. So, yeah. So just real quick, because I think it goes, it's worth saying, um, you know, these five women who were involved in a uh, an altercation at the end of season one in which Perry, who is uh, Celeste's husband, played by Nicole Kidman. Bonnie's ex-husband. Um, is that right? I don't right? actually, I don't think that's accurate. I don't know. I thought you told me that. No, that's two different characters. <laughs> oh, God dang. <dancing. laughs> we'll get to it. I, I promise we'll make this as logical as possible. But okay. Perry is abusive to Celeste. And during one altercation in which he is uh, physically aggressive with her, these women confront him. Bonnie, to your point, ends up delivering the final push down the stairs. Perry falls down the stairs and ultimately dies. He's dead. Now, it's my opinion that they could have just gone to the cops and been like, this guy was, you know, beating up our friend and this was sort of self-defense and like that could have ended everything. But hey, it's a fun show and it kept going and and the lies continue. Yep. They're big. And they're little and it's okay. So we're going to get into all these characters and their various uh, interactions with therapy um, because that's why we picked episode three in particular because there are a lot of different interactions that these characters have with uh, therapists, plural. Yes. Okay, so I want to frame this episode. Let's do it. From what from what I saw. And so this episode's called The End of the World, uh, season two, episode three. Basically, from my perspective, what I saw happening in this show, there is a guy named Ed who is married to a woman named Madeline. Madeline has recently cheated on Ed, and they are in uh, marriage counseling for it. So he he found out recently the cheating incident at Health uh, apparently happened about a year ago in the show's time. Uh, okay, okay. So, okay. So Ed just found out. Yes. Right? Yes. And they they go to uh, marriage counseling over this. Yes. Then we also have Celeste who is in therapy because Perry just died. Has actually been in th in therapy with this therapist since before he died. Was in therapy actually with Perry for a period of time in season one as well. Okay. And the therapist here is the same therapist for the marriage counseling and for Celeste. Yes. Yes. And then um, what else is going on is uh, Madeline is dealing with what's happening in marriage counseling outside of marriage counseling, talking to her friends. Um, we have Meryl Streep, who I didn't catch her character's name. Mary Louise. Mary Louise. Yeah, she's uh, just being horrible through the show. And well, then she's, she's, we have... Perry's, she's Perry's mother, and she is understandably confused and upset about the loss of her son. Yes. Right. And then we have, um, I'm going to butcher it, it's uh, Renata. Renata, I think. Renata. Yes. Uh, who's dealing with the fact that her daughter has had an anxiety attack because the school is teaching them too much about climate change and how it's going to destroy the planet. So th that's basically what's going on with all the characters in this That's, that's your entry point, yeah. <laughs> but first thing that we jump off in, and it's it's really one of the big things going on as far as 
just total like, you know, WTFs happening here is Madeline and Ed's meeting with the marriage counseling. I'll just say it first. So I, I just, I didn't understand the therapist at all. Mm. Who I actually put in my notes, it, it looks like Dr. Evil from the Austin Powers series, just like sitting in the chair, like <laughs> giving them what I viewed as just like the worst therapy session I could imagine. Terrible advice, horribly confrontational, just picking out problems for them and telling them they have these specific problems. And I thought, OK, I'm going to talk to Ryan and he's going to tell me that he agrees with that. I'm hoping that that's true. Did I agree with what your perception is of them? Yeah, I just, like, what did you see in this scene? Because yeah. I know you wanted to start here. Yes, so. yes, yes, yes. So, yes, um, the this therapist, uh, Dr. Reisman, does have a pretty confrontational style. We come into this couple's counseling session, you know, sort of expecting that Madeline is just going to be the one on the defensive because she has cheated on Ed. What a terrible thing to happen you know, let's confront Madeline and try to solve the relationship from there. But she actually almost immediately starts out saying, yes, obviously what Madeline did is wrong, but Ed is not innocent in how the relationship has gotten to this point. This is correct. She just tells Madeline something negative about Madeline or, or what sounds like she's siding with Ed. She, she goes on a spiel about that. And Ed says, thank you to the therapist, you know, mm -hmm. like she just yep. validated how he was feeling. Yes. And she turns to Ed and says, you are culpable in this cheating because you told me that you're a go along, get along type of guy because you're overly accommodating and profoundly disengaging. You've let this happen. And then I almost fell out of my chair. You describe yourself as a go along, get along, don't make waves kind of guy. That makes you either wonderfully accommodating or profoundly disengaged. Interesting. So what 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 do you have a problem with? Because he's a nice guy, he let her cheat on him? Okay, so that's I guess that's not how I interpreted it. That's interesting. Um she sort of makes the accusation to Ed that he's been disengaged. Yeah, the profoundly disengaged is the only like redeeming part of that sentence for me. Right. So, and that's that's a, a fair criticism of a, a partner within a relationship, right? Yeah. Now we it's we, we I I don't know that the the therapist sort of makes that equivalent to cheating, which I don't know if I would necessarily agree with. We can. Um, she did. She did equate it to cheating. She, did. she yeah. She did. She was like that was the whole point of what she said was that it was the same as cheating, and. I, I, I don't know. I don't want to take this whole part over, but it, I was just like, OK, so maybe he was disengaged. So they should have gotten marriage counseling then. Oh, sure. That does not in any way mean he let her cheat on him. Yeah, no, I, I don't. I don't know because and I guess we should also um, clarify what the exact cheating incident was. Yeah. So from my memory, Madeline cheated on Ed with. Uh, Please say Perry. No, 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 no. Um, their daughter's uh, uh, theater director, which is like so soap opera-y. And what happened was during a conversation between Madeline and their daughter, Madeline and, and Madeline's daughter, you know, Madeline's daughter basically like called her out like, oh, you kind of preach family and you preach these things. Meanwhile, a year ago, you know, you hooked up with the theater director. And then out of the corner of the scene comes Ed sort of overhearing this conversation, clearly never having heard this information before. Yeah. So he says, oh, you know, what's this about, you know, hooking up with the theater director? And Madeline tries to play it off like, oh, you must have misheard it. And that's sort of the, the beginning of, oh, okay, this couple is clearly in trouble. Ed makes statements about, you know, their relationship being over. And then we see them in couples counseling. Right. Would you say like, so So they're going to marriage counseling because obviously they want to save this relationship. Yes. So if you were in this situation, would you also, even though maybe this therapist is in my mind, just way overboard, but would you also be like, okay, you both are trying to save this relationship. So we have to acknowledge things on both sides. In, in a way, yes. Um, because in couples counseling, and this is sort of my own perspective, my own spin. Um, I think people may feel differently, but the therapist 
is on the side of the relationship. And maybe I've said things to this this effect before on the show, but yeah, presumably the therapist has not worked with Ed or Madeline before. So if that's the case, they're just coming in uh, fresh for couples counseling. The therapist, it's their job to not align with either member, either partner within the relationship. It's their job to align with the goal of the couple. And if the goal of the couple is to fix a relationship or reunify or rebuild trust, then that's the therapist's alignment is I'm on team reunification. I'm not on team Ed. I'm not on team Madeline. I'm just how do we get back to a place where this relationship works again? So to that effect, it makes sense to create space for both partners to have things that they can be working on. Okay. I don't, I don't know that I'd necessarily say like, you cheated, that's bad. You've been checked out, that's also bad. Right, you're not, let's think, not focus on these things we did wrong. Well, right, and I think it, it, well, comparing one partner to the other is kind of a setup for me. In session especially, I don't want one uh, partner to to sort of have that feeling of like, oh, so I'm checked out, but that's just as bad as someone stepping out of the marriage. Like, I don't want the comparison. I want the focus on what work is going to be done to move forward to regrow things that have broken. Another thing that she does is she tells Ed, Madeline cheated on you and you're disengaged. So don't you think that she could have been wanting your attention? Yeah. And f- and for me, if I was in his situation and my wife had cheated on me and I was in marriage counseling and they told me that my wife cheated on me because she wanted attention, not only would I uh, profoundly disengage from that, <laughs> but I would my I mean I would be hurt. Oh sure. I would be hurt that that it was okay in the therapist's mind, or at least that's the message she's sending by asking that question. It was okay in the therapist's mind that her wanting attention from me was was grounds for cheating on me. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I have a huge problem with cheating, so you're never going to get me there. No, I, I'm, I think I'm on the same page as you. I think that's why I don't want this comparison or this kind of blaming and, and you know, she was just doing this because she wanted your attention. So if you had just given her attention, this could have prevented. Like, I, I think that's, it's, it's a risky road. And, and to your earlier point, Dr. Reisman is a confrontational style therapist. You know, if this is the first session, it's like that's one of the things that kind of blows me away about sometimes the way therapy is portrayed is that there's not even like a hint of a here's session one in which we establish rapport. Here's session two in which we start to, you know, uh, be aligned on our goals. Now, here's session three in which we start to address some of these things, because if this was the first session and she's like, you're disengaged, it's like, whoa, if I'm Ed, I'm like, hey, can we think about a different therapist? Because that was like crazy, right? Yes. And that's the feeling they give you that this is first or second. Like, yeah, they just started seeing this person. And then she starts like making assumptions about Madeline's life. She does. She makes some some pretty distinct accusations about Madeline. And again, we don't know how much they already know about each other, how much Madeline has been sharing about her own history with uh, the therapist. But yeah, she's makes some pretty pointed accusations about the fact that Madeline uh, didn't attend college and is making a really big deal about their daughter not wanting to attend college. I'm sorry? You spoke earlier of your daughter not wanting to go to college. Does that have something to do with her perception? I don't see where that is relevant. Did you go to college? Do you ever take a, like, as a therapist, do you ever take, like, offense when writers portray a therapist like this, because I can't even imagine a confrontational style therapist mm. kind of even go into some of these degrees that you see in this scene, particularly. I'm terrible at that word, but do you actually like take offense? Like this isn't my job and you're making us look bad. So it's interesting. I actually don't um, because I and partly because I know confrontational therapists. Like I, I know that that is a style that people take. And frankly, if, if you read some of the reaction to Big Little Lies and the therapist in particular, I'll just read you an, an article title because I think it's a good representation of how some people feel about this therapist and actually do like her style. The title is The Big Little Lies Therapist is the Delphine Oracle of Monterey. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, and it's, it's very complimentary of her confrontational style. And this, uh, author, uh, by the name of Mark Berger in interviewmagazine.com 
talks about how he's almost uh, intrigued and curious about if he was to work with a therapist like this, like what would she pull out of him in a very positive way? So that's why for me, I don't take offense to it because I know there are therapists like that. And frankly, there are patients who look for this kind of confrontation. Hmm. I that just, being said, that doesn't mean I agree with the I agree with the approach. I think if anything, this approach is more likely to push patients away than it is to bring patients in. But well, I, I think it's a good thing to actually think about, which is so this is a confrontational therapist. Is this what confrontational therapy actually looks like, or is this even more overboard than what actual confrontational therapy is? Like, what am I going to expect as a patient if I get a confrontational therapist? And I'm looking for that. And maybe it's my first time getting one. I mean, this might not be that far off from a, uh, a confrontational therapist that people might see in the real world. You know, it's, it's interesting. She does strongly confront. And we should clarify that she, uh, the therapist, Dr. Reisman, also sees Celeste, Nicole Kidman's character, for uh, her relationship, obviously, in grief from her husband's death. And is very confrontational with Celeste as well. It's true. Calls her an addict of, you know, Perry's abuse. Oh, yeah. You know, a lot of things like that. So this confrontational style comes up again again. This is not a one-time thing. So for me, it's like, I do sort of cringe because I picture myself being the patient and and just sort of recoiling from, yes. from her confrontation and... Now, that doesn't mean it can't be effective. I think confrontation has its place. Um, but for me, you know, yeah, my confrontation with my patients, let's just say, looks very different. Okay. Because I'm thinking, like, in therapy, you know, I try to be as honest as possible, right, when I'm yes. in therapy. And I really do try. But being 100% honest all the time is just, I don't know, it's just not going to happen, especially with, like, some of the problems, like, I deal with and a lot of people in therapy deal with. Like you'll you'll hide stuff. You don't want them to know maybe the extreme things are going on or or maybe I don't know, just different things, right? Mm -hmm. And I could imagine maybe like a confrontational therapist like calling me out, right? Like yeah. right then and there. Yep. And putting me out of like a safe zone into this place where I have to own up to whatever it is that I'm trying to hide at that moment. Mm -hmm. So I could imagine that being effective. Oh, I just wouldn't want to do it. <laughs> Well, yeah, so so Brett, this is part of the question, though, that if she's always this confrontational, does it lose some of the impact that the confrontation can can offer if it's in more infrequent doses? Because I think that's sort of my style is that I want to make my patients very comfortable so that they are comfortable being open and honest as much as possible. Right. So that then if or when I'm compelled to confront like it has teeth. It's it's memorable. Yes. It, it's 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 not just well. Here we go. My therapist is uh, insulting me or saying how terrible I am at, at working through these issues again. Like what else is new? But it's actually right. just like oh, you know, Ryan has just uh, uh, said something borderline negative about how I'm handling things. Like this wow, is not what's this happening. must be bad. This must be serious. It's like a parent with a lot of patience. Sure. Uh, yeah. And their kid acts up, you know, and normally they're real kind a lot and yep. they deal with it a lot. But then they finally like, you know, stop doing that. And yeah, yeah, yeah. the kid's like, holy moly, you know. Yeah. And, and you've talked a little bit about some of your inter, inter I should say you talked about some of your experiences with therapists, you know, and the sort of varied um, degrees of which they've sort of like participated in your treatment. You know, yeah. if they're just listeners or if they're sort of more more pushing or more talking or more advice giving. And I think it's important for patients uh, and people to know themselves, to know what works for them. Right. When when you go into a relationship like this, because, you know, unlike just seeing your primary care physician who's going to give you a swab or a blood test and just say, this is the disease you have. Here's some medicine. The relationship is actually so important. Yeah. That if you don't trust the relationship, if you don't trust the therapist, if you're not willing and comfortable being honest, that the the ability for the work to be effective is just so strongly hampered, right? Right. And we should point out that in all the work that we see Dr. Reisman do with 
Ed and Madeline, and with Celeste. I personally don't see any noticeable progress. <laughs> yeah, not in the one episode I watched. That's right. <laughs> but no, I mean, I, I, you know, over the course of the two seasons, you see a lot of sessions and, you know, Celeste makes some progress, but she's, you know, still really struggling with a lot of different aspects of how her former husband treated her. So, you know, that's why for me, this sort of like more blanket confrontational style, I would say has more minuses than pluses. I think this all begs the question with these different styles of therapists. If you kind of know yourself as as a patient and you know yourself and you know or maybe have an idea of what you need, we're talking about all these different styles. How do we how do we find that? Like what do we do to say, "Hey, I I need a confrontational therapist." I mean, it's not like you can just, you know, Google confrontational therapist no, in yep. in my city, you know. Mm-hmm. No, I think it's it's about that sort of relationship setting where if you know the type and I, and I ask my patients, especially if they've been in therapy before, you know, what about your past relationships with therapists has worked? What hasn't? What's helped you grow? What has gotten in the way of you growing in those relationships? Because if I get a patient who says, you know, I want to be held accountable, I want homework or I want, you know, I, I want my issues to be confronted. I don't just want to be coddled it's like okay great i i can also do that because it's interesting you know i I, as we're talking about this i'm thinking about my own experiences in therapy um most of my experiences in therapy have been pretty short-lived and i think what i know about myself is that and this is in partly because i'm a therapist like i know what the therapist is doing yeah that i probably benefit more from a confrontational relationship with a therapist okay because if I go in and I know exactly what the therapist is doing and they're working through the same CBT or DBT techniques that I would do with my patients, it's like, it's like, yeah, I can do this with myself. Right. So you need to push me a little bit harder right. if I'm going to benefit from the you work we're doing. You need to surprise me. Yeah, more or less. And I think that's okay. It's, it's okay for me to know that and for me to ask for that. Yeah. There are two more ethical things that I want to touch on with Dr. Reisman. Okay. Okay. So one is we've mentioned the fact that Dr. Reisman sees both Celeste, uh, who's Nicole Kidman's character. We've, they've been seeing each other for some time. And then Dr. Reisman also sees Madeline and Ed. Madeline and Celeste obviously are, if not very close friends, maybe even best friends. This is an ethical issue. Dr. Reisman already knows a great deal of information about Madeline before they've even met. Yeah. So now this this varies by, uh, let's just say, community setting, and I'll explain that in a second. But if I'm seeing a patient and I know that patient's circle of friends and then another member of that friend group even requests to see me, that would be an ethical issue that I would be very hesitant to take on the friend. Really? Even in a couple's, even in a couple's counseling setting, because I'm already biased. I'm, I already know information about this person from another person. And that information is going to be hard to separate from my relationship with that new person. And likely Madeline's been portrayed in a good light, you know, as being a supportive friend through, yes. you know, through the Perry situation sure. from, from what I can guess. I, I was just going to have to say, I've told you about the therapist that I saw uh, that kind of led me down a really strange path with diagnosis and stuff. Mm hmm. He, this therapist that I saw, he, you know, this is in like 2012-ish time. He saw me, my sister, my sister's husband, our friend. He saw like everyone that I know that needed therapy was seeing him like yeah. around the same time. Right. So that's what I was referencing before. The sort of community setting is a factor in this, you know, especially in rural areas around the country or across the world. Listen, there are some communities who only have one therapist. That's just a fact. And and if that's the case, you can't help but get sort of stuck in these sorts of situations. But that's why you have to yeah. you have to do your homework and you have to be very upfront with your patients and saying, listen, I've been seeing you for this period of time. I have to be upfront with you that I am taking on another patient that, you know, you may know about this. You may not. But I have to I have to let you know that right. it may become an issue. And I'm able to completely set things down between yes. I can have the patient. boundaries necessary to make this relationship work. Right. Ideally. I mean, I mean, certainly in communities, it's possible that they may not be able to, and that would be a huge problem. I feel like this community and big little lies would be impossible. 
Well, right. And and look, Monterey, California, you would think that there are enough therapists that you don't need to see the same therapist as your best friend. <laughs> so that's one ethical problem that I have. Okay. The second one is, and there's a, I don't know if this is the episode that you saw or not, but there's a scene with Dr. Reisman and Celeste. And, and look, we know she's a confrontational therapist, but she kind of out of left field asks Celeste to more or less close her eyes and relive one of the abusive episodes she experienced with her late husband. I don't think that was this episode. This was not no. an episode. Okay. So they're in session and they're talking about Celeste's memories and, and experiences with her abusive uh, former husband, Perry. And because of the sort of slow progress that Celeste is making, Dr. Reisman asks her to close her eyes and to, and again, out of the blue, it's not like, hey, we're going to transition into trauma-centered therapy now, and we're going to do this approach. It's just, hey, close your eyes, picture one of the incidents um, of you being abused. And Celeste sort of hesitates, but, you know, Dr. Reisman really pushes her and just says, you know, close your eyes and, and just more or less relive it. Tell me what you're experiencing. And she starts crying. Is this the, is this when she's telling her that she is clinging to too many good memories? I think so. Okay. So yeah, I did yes. see this then. Okay. Yes. yes. So then, and then in that same scene, she asks Celeste to picture her former husband abusing Madeline in the same way. So picture Madeline experiencing the abuse that you experienced and, you know, basically asking Celeste, like, did Madeline deserve that? Obviously, the answer is no, but this is really confrontational and it's really intense. And look, it's it's for me, it's kind of like a made for TV moment where you wouldn't do this in therapy. Oh, I hope not. If you're going to transition into this sort of trauma centered approach, there's going to be some, hey, I'd like to try this approach with you. Here's why. Here's what it's going to be like. Are you comfortable with it? You know, let's give it a shot. There's going to be a lot of sort of preparation for an approach like this. They're not just going to come out of left field and ask them to close their eyes and picture them being abused by their dead husband. Right. In my experiences, when you do something that's uh, a little extra, like you do, like um, like even when I did EMDR, mm -hmm. uh, not only did my therapist at that time explain what D EMDR was, but I actually got like literature on yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and hey, read this book. This is, you know, the benefits, you know, and even asking, asking me like, do you want to do this? Mm -hmm. Right. And then you have to be agreeable, you know? So. That is not a realistic portrayal as far as I'm concerned. To Mike's point, there should be a lot more preparation and discussion around what treatment approaches are going to be used and why. So that's my my last thing on Dr. Reisman. And let's I guess let's take a break. <laughs> yeah. OK, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to tell you about Dr. Little Bo Peep. So, Mike, it's time for us to talk about one of the weirdest therapist portrayals I've ever seen on screen had no idea what was even happening it took me a second like it took me a second she walks down the stairs and i'm like what's happening yeah like, it, it, i couldn't wrap my head around what they were trying to tell us as an audience bizarre so so <laughs> so bizarre um so you you do the setup you you um give us how we got to okay. this point well there's a couple things to talk about here but we're gonna talk yeah. about the therapist first okay okay so renata's daughter is in i think like second grade mm -hmm. and they're teaching them about climate change and how it's, you know, destroying the planet. Through the lens of Charlotte's Web, Mike. <laughs> Through the lens of Charlotte's Web and some sort of metaphor about uh, Charlotte trying to change Wilbur. Right. <laughs> Terraforming. Yeah, because we need we need sustainability. Yes, of course. That's right. So her daughter has a full on panic attack and they have to take her to the hospital. Uh, you know, Renata gets very upset about this. I'm not even going to go into that as far as the level of upsetness that Renata is about this. But they get a therapist for her. And this is the part where I had trouble even understanding what was happening because they go from Renata being angry and they clip over to the next scene. And what you see is a woman coming down the stairs in a, a literal little Bo Peep outfit. And then she sits down with the parents and starts talking to them about 
her conclusions on what her daughter feels and thinks. And then it dawns on me, this is the therapist. And she went up and did therapy as little Bo Peep. She sure did. And, and talk to her and the voice of little Bo Peep leaves her saying, I can't wait to see you again. I'll bring tea and crumpets. Um, is actually wearing fake teeth, which I don't even that's understand right. why that's necessary. How, she what's, had a cane. Dr. what's Bo Peep supposed to look like? Why does she need yeah. fake teeth? I know. And she had the, the cane, the, like the yeah. sheep herding cane. The shepherd's cane. crook. Yes. Yes. Hello. Oh, we had such wonderful fun together. Did you, honey? Yeah. Is it, this is an easy question. Like, is what is this? Is this a real thing? Do people, do therapists dress up, go to people's houses to give, I, I mean, what can only be called uh, therapy role play? Mm-hmm. So uh, let me just say out front, uh, Dr. Bo Peep would never, ever, ever, ever exist in the real world. Okay. Um, like this. <laughs> it just, it, it's a sort of a mockery of what play therapy is. Right. Which we talked about in the Mary Poppins episode. We sure did. And that actually was, uh, there was a lot of good things there. Yes. In that one. Yes. So play therapy here, what's sort of being implied is that this therapist is coming in as little Bo Peep, who we assume the daughter's name is uh, Amabella, who we assume Amabella is just very receptive to. And for whatever reason, tells little Bo Peep, everything she's feeling and everything she's anxious about. Oh, the perfect result too, right? Perfect result. And I think that's one of the weirdest things. It's like, yeah, no, this just worked. I was just little Bo Peep and now I'm taking my bonnet off and let me tell you everything I learned about your daughter. It's like, yeah, whoa. But yes, so it was 100% effective. However, this is just not, not uh, what happens in real life. Yeah, but that's not the only reason it's unrealistic. Oh, please say more. Well, there's also the the speed in which she showed up to her house. Oh, sure. And, and having that availability for somebody just to be there. Yes. Um, especially to the degree of which she was prepared to do this. Yes. So thank you for bringing that up. Because unfortunately in this country, specifically, but also in the world, there is a, a disparity in uh, therapeutic services that are available to... Uh, people with resources, money in particular, or connections also, but money in particular, and and the have-nots, people who live in rural areas or people who are uh, who don't have insurance, people yeah. who um, you know don't have money or connections, or all those sorts of things. And this is such a perfect example of that fact. You know, Amabella has a panic attack in her school, is is hospitalized, which also. I was a little surprised by not saying that it wasn't warranted, just saying that I don't know if all schools would have would have hospitalized her. Yeah, I don't mm. know. I don't know. So the mom, Renata, and her husband, Gordon, who are come with her to the, the hospital, and Renata immediately tries to get the hospital to uh, discharge her and admit her to Stanford, which is obviously a more prestigious hospital. Yes, because it's Stanford. Right. And the doctor basically just like... Um, Okay, well, that's not necessary. We're discharging her. Like, she's fine. <laughs> um, yeah. She's cleared. She's she's cleared to go home. So we go from that scene, and then we presume that Renata has worked her connections or made a couple phone calls and has gotten this child therapist expert. That's right. On short notice to come and do a home visit, all all of which is is really hard to get access to in the normal world. Yeah. You know, I've worked with patients who, who, you know, if I get a child and they'll say, you know, I've been trying to get my, my son or my daughter a therapist for weeks or months, you know, and, and uh, even getting them to me in, in some cases is difficult, whether because of money or insurance. So it's even in the situation that I'm in, is not a perfect one. But to be able to have that ease of access and that, that quickness of uh, success also is just extremely unlikely. You know, I think our, our assumption that Dr. Little Bo Peep is so good at her job that she's able to form a bond with Amabella and get all of this information about all the things that she's anxious right. about. She's anxious about climate change, the world ending. She's anxious about uh, her father, who was recently jailed for some shady business dealings. And she's anxious about her mother, who 
She doesn't really know why, but she knows her mom is going through yeah. some stuff, basically. Her mom has put walls up. And the and the weirdest part there for me was this is portrayed and you get the feeling that Bo Peep, Dr. Bo Peep, mm-hmm. showed up and it felt like it was a 15-minute therapy session. It felt like she walked up and was like, so tell me what happened. And then the daughter told her what happened. And then she yeah. was like, solved. Yeah. And look, the, the feedback that Dr. Little Bo Peep gave to Renata and Gordon was presumably uh, very useful and, and important for them to have. But the likelihood of that being the outcome from this bizarre therapy <laughs> setup is just, for me, like borderline impossible. I, I have to ask you before you tell us about the realistic okay. outcome and what that really looks like. That would be if you had a patient mm-hmm. and you knew that they just, this is the only thing that would get through to them. And they asked you to, I don't know, dress up like the Quaker Oats guy and go to their house. I don't know why that <laughs> was the... <laughs> why the Quaker Oats guy? Am I working with Quakers? It popped right in my head. I okay. don't know. Sure. And you had to go and you had to wear the hat and like the the twisty tie collar and the jacket and the whole... Oh, you had to have the white wig on everything. Sure. And that was going to be the only way you were going to get through to somebody. Mm-hmm. What would you do? Uh, well, up front, I just have to say I'm I'm not licensed to practice uh, in home, you know, so I can't go to anyone's home in my current clinical capacity right now. <laughs> I'm disappointed. Um, no, no. The sh- the shorter answer is no. I I would not, um, because and I think this is the this is the criticism. The client or the child wouldn't be bonding with me, Ryan, the therapist. They'd be bonding with the Quaker Oats man. Yeah. Or they'd be bonding with little Bo Peep. And he's super easy to bond with too. So then it would be really hard to bond with you at like an actual in-house, you yeah, know, in your then, office. And then they have weird relationship with the Quaker Oats man. It just, yeah, it they just, couldn't eat oatmeal. Yeah. It again. really throws yeah. everything off. Um, it does. So, okay. so no, I mean, I, I think even in the scenario in which, oh, you know, my child really responds to someone who's this, this, or this, you know, look, I, when I've worked with children, I do uh, play games and do art and, you know, uh, do little exercises and things like that, even do role-playing stuff, totally fine. But to take it to this, this next level, I think is purely frictional. Yeah. Oh, well, no. So, the, so I think it makes sense then for us to, if this happened in real life, which is not that far from uh, reality, you know, a child or even multiple children having anxiety about the types of discussions that are happening in schools, having a panic attack, and and what would a real outcome of that situation look like, since we are clearly saying it would not be this, right? Yeah. So, and it's interesting, because there are in-home therapists. I have friends who do this. It's, a, it's, a, it's challenging work, and I applaud yeah. them for doing in-home counseling. It's definitely a, like a required service. Like, I mean, oh, no question. It, it, yeah, some people, like that would be the only way they could see a therapist. Yes, well, right. Whether because of uh, convenience or, or logistics or disability. Or like agoraphobia. There's a whole list sure. of things. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, but I'm talking specifically for children. A lot of times okay. in-home therapy is, is sometimes what happens. So in these cases, if a patient is hospitalized, if a child is hospitalized, you know, they might be referred for what we know as in-home services, where a therapist can go in and do a proper evaluation, not just of the child, but of the family, and get a big picture of what's happening here, and have interactions with the child in their environment. And that's why in-home therapy can be really valuable, is because you can see, you know, not just a child coming into your office and depending on them sharing with you, but you can see what their house looks like. You can see what their room looks like. Right. And there's a lot of value in that. You can see how they talk to each other. Yeah, absolutely. So there's incredible value in that. And I think if... For those uh, people who have been able to access those services, I think there's a lot of uh, possible outcomes just like little Bo Peep uh, magically creates where you can really create some some useful insight for the family, not just the child. Right. But okay, the bigger issue as well, just real quick, Mike, because I think in watching the show, it's like this this liberal utopia kind of weird place where... When they talk about Charlotte's Web, they're not really talking about like a pig and a spider. They're talking about sustainability. Like, I don't think this is uh, uh, your typical grammar school. Let's just put it that way. That's right. 
That's very right. And that, so that, <laughs> and that, that actually helps us talk about what the school yes. is doing. Yes. Because I also think that I, I think climate change is real and man-made and is a real problem. And that to certain degrees, children uh, should uh, be included in some of these discussions. But the way it's portrayed in the school, it just it's made out to be this like borderline doomsday thing. So you're almost right. not surprised when the kids start to have these anxiety reactions. That's, that's right. They're introducing it to, you know, second graders who are, what, eight years old? Uh, that sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. So, and they're not just saying climate change is a thing. They're telling them like the full consequences of climate change. And right. that's good to know. Needs to be learned for sure. sure. Yeah. But I don't know in, in, for me if eight is the time to tell your kid that the humans could destroy the planet they live on because they may not recognize, and we're taking this very specific example. Yes, yes. They may not <laughs> recognize that that isn't happening today. Right. So the anxiety makes sense. I mean, it's funny because um, within the past couple months, my daughter's school had like a recycling week. And that's like a totally appropriate level, I think, on which to talk to kids about these problems, right? Yeah. Of, of how can we take care of our environment in ways that they can grasp. And not only that they can grasp, but they can actually feel like that they can possibly contribute to something. Like, oh, we put this in the garbage. Oh, we put this in the recycling. Or, oh, we pick up trash if we see it on the ground. Like, totally fine. But I think when you start talking about things like sustainability and gosh like the ozone which i think is like uh, in between stage that you they could start to grasp at a certain level do we still have an ozone yeah okay i thought they had decided it's that in they... trouble but yeah okay yeah yeah <laughs> no the hole went away that's what happened yes yes okay yeah. it was a good thing it was a good thing yeah <laughs> um but yeah it's it's just a tough thing because and this episode ends and maybe we can talk about this later this week, Mike, with Madeline, Reese Witherspoon's character, sort of standing up in a uh, school sort of uh, town hall meeting thing where uh, the sort of school principal almost calls on her to say, hey, um, you're an opinionated parent. Like, why don't you come up and tell everybody why it's important for us to talk about these things? And she sort of goes into this whole spiel about why and how the reality is, is like sometimes we lie to our kids. Sometimes we tell them the truth. Here's why that's hard. Here's the impact that has. And look, I mean, it's it's a hard thing to, to determine what to confront your children with, because the reality is, is we as adults sometimes are scared about these things. No, absolutely. Yeah. Right? Like Mike, and, and and I can ask you, and this is something I actually wanted to ask you about, because this is something you, you had shared with me. You, you've, uh, you live in the Midwest. You've had to do like shelter in place and stuff, right? Shelter in place. Like for tornadoes and stuff? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Like uh, you crouch in the yeah, yeah, yeah. school thing. Everyone crouches, yeah. but their hands over their head, that kind of stuff, yeah. Yeah, so, and that might not necessarily be climate change related, but there is this awareness that, like, the environment is a scary thing sometimes. So how much do your kids know about, like, that? How much do you talk to your kids about that stuff? Zero percent. <laughs> okay, okay. So that's, so, well, yeah, so that's why I'm asking. Well, I mean, Ben is, he turns four this month, you know? Sure, yeah. I haven't gotten, I'm... Yeah, I don't know. As far as, I don't really tell them a lot of stuff. Do they have to do the crouch and stuff at that age? They're not. My kids aren't in school. Oh, that's right. Um, but I, I can tell you, I can look back into my childhood and tell mm -hmm. you how stuff affected me to a different degree. So I grew up uh, Mormon. Sure. And it was actually like a side Mormon, but I just call it Mormon because it's easy for everyone to, to understand, understand what yeah, that yeah. means. Mm -hmm. And my specific church was like preparing for the end of the world because Zion was coming, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. And like, so we we collected and packed away rice into this like shed thing. And they talked about this guy called the Mighty and Strong and how, you know, he would be there to lead us in Zion, which was coming to my city, of course. And I mean, before I came to the realization that in my life, where I realized that like every generation thinks that they're the generation where the world is going to end, I, you know, that, that was frightening as a kid to think that the world as I knew it was going to come to an, a screeching halt, you know? Yeah. And you, when you're a kid, you believe everything you're told. Of course. Uh, now, I will say, 
this was so out there that even when I was 10, I was like, you guys are like, really? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sure. sure. <laughs> so, yeah, it's 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 too it's it's too much too soon for a kid, even with the realistic stuff, I think. So, look, I mean, and I, I agree with that, but I also think we do have to figure out how to talk to them about it in general and when the conversation should happen. Um, right. you, you and I just did a, a guest spot on on a podcast and we talked about sort of how to start having conversations with your kids about mental health. And one of the things that I brought up was, I mean, look, these kids younger and younger are having like live shooter drills. Now, yeah. my daughter is in daycare. She's technically in preschool or pre-K and they don't call them live shooter drills, but they have drills where they all have to hold hands and they close the doors and they more or less shelter in place. Now, they don't tell them it's because someone might be doing something scary like this, but the adults all know that's why they're doing right. it. And then you think like, it, you know, in the 60s, they had the kids. The atomic bomb under, stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah sure. The yep. nuclear war and stuff. Yeah. And it certainly it plants these thoughts, just like to bring it back to, to Amabella, it plants these thoughts of, so wait, am I not safe? And that's yeah. so dangerous. I mean, we talked a bit about last week with the aviator. It's so dangerous for a child to have that introduced to them at a young age, the possibility that they're not safe, that we have to be so careful about how we have these conversations and not necessarily lying to them, but choosing how to frame it for them. Let's put it that right. way. Yep. Okay. Well, we got to end this one and jump into our ratings. I hope you guys liked the conversation about big little lies and the therapy and talking to kids and everything. But if you haven't listened to the show before, every week, Ryan and I rate the show on a scale of one to five. Ryan rates for accuracy and I rate for enjoyment. Ryan, what did you rate it this week? Well, Mike, out of five shepherd's crooks. Oh, man. It, it's funny because, you know, through our conversation, a lot of this is pretty realistic. And really the only thing that to me was completely unrealistic was the child therapist dressing up as little Bo Peep. If she had just been walking down the stairs as Dr. Whomever saying like, oh, like it was so nice to meet you, Amabella. I can't wait to talk to you again. And then, you know, and then communicates the things to Amabella's parents. I would have been like, great, five, cool, Complex story, you know, characters a little bit out there, but not that far from reality. But because of that, I have to dock it at least a point. So I'm going to give it four shepherd's crooks. Four shepherd's crooks. Wow. I did not. I thought we were going to agree today. Like, that's how I, I came today. I was like, oh, we both totally have the same number. Mm. So I guess we're not. I guess not. Okay. So I'm going to go with, uh, I'm going to one out of five Meryl Streep's. Because I actually, in my notes, I wrote Meryl Streep is the worst. <laughs> So she's a pretty, pretty tough character to align with. Yeah. Yeah. And she, she's really good at playing that kind of character. Yes, so she is. I'm going to make people mad right now and I'm going to be unapologetic about it. <laughs> this show is a total one for me. That isn't because I'm right and you're wrong. That's because I personally don't like love to hate characters. Sure. And this show is almost every single one of them are love to hate characters. So I just I just don't like that style of character. I can do like one or two of them and have the rest be good guys, you know. Yeah. Uh, but these were all pretty, pretty terrible characters in well, my hard, opinion. Hard to watch. And yeah, I should clarify, you know, when I rated a four, it's not saying that I, I applaud everything that every character did. It's more just, look, yes, there were unethical things that were happening. Yes, this was a really intense confrontational therapist that cross some lines. Um, but that doesn't mean that this doesn't happen in the real world. And yeah. that's why I want, I want people to be informed patients when they go into this process of, you know, what, what is the range of therapists that I could encounter and what do I think I need? Yeah. So that's why I really want people to know that, that yes, a lot of this is pretty realistic, even if it isn't good. Yeah, that's true. And even for personalities, people like this out there exist, but for my fiction, I, I just, I can do, I, I need less love to hate characters for my gotcha. fiction. So I do one out of five for this one. So, all right, everyone, we got to get out of here for the day. Make sure you stick around for Ryan's closing thoughts. But first, we need to thank Kevin McLeod for all the music that we use on the show. If you need royalty-free music for your project, you can find him at filmmusic.io. And now for some closing thoughts on the HBO series, Big Little Lies. 
Access to therapy, treatment, and support services can be a big barrier. Not everyone has the luxury of looking for a therapist that is right for them. For a lot of people, it's just whatever the first therapist that's available to them. If that's the case, it's exponentially more important to advocate for your needs and what support style works best for you. Never avoid expressing your thoughts to your therapist. It's their job to try to accommodate them if they can or refer you to someone who can if they're able. As we talked about in the episode, it can be hard to determine what to be honest with your children about and what to hide from them. Whatever your decision, making sure they have the support they need when things become confusing or stressful makes a huge difference. There will always be things kids will learn about that will confuse or frighten them, but if at the end of the day they trust that you will help them through those experiences, you won't have to worry about finding a child therapist dressed as little Bo Peep to get the truth from them. Thank you so much for listening to our show. If you like the show, please check out our social media pages. We are everywhere at poppsych 101 We also love hearing from our listeners, so if you want to give feedback or suggest something for us to cover, you can email us at poppsych 101 at gmail.com or join our Facebook group. Pop Psych 101 is on iTunes, Spotify, and everywhere podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us share these discussions about mental health, please leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe wherever you listen. For Mike Graham, I'm Ryan Engelstab. Thanks for listening to Pop Psych 101.